His name is Heston Blumenthal. He is one of the finest chefs in the world with a knowledge of food unlike anyone else on the planet. And now he's going to take us on a journey to the centre of food, revealing fantastical new depths to our simplest ingredients and hopefully helping us all change our relationship with food just a little bit. Hello, Heston. How are you doing? Hello, Jay. How are you? I'm good as gold. I can hear people. I can hear things like cutlery and things in the background. So I imagine you are mid-cook <clears throat> or mid-food. Yes, we are mid-cook. We are, we are, I'm here in the, our lab house in France, having spent 25 years looking from the outside in. So how does the way we chop onions affect the way they taste? How does the sound of, that we hear or listen to while we eat affect our perception of food? All of this stuff I've taken with me in the last 25 years of my journey. Now I'm turning around and I'm looking inside out. Which is a lovely way to introduce what we're up to. So the idea of this podcast is that you're going to be packing us into a miniature submarine with you and, and sort of diving, deep diving into ingredients that we all use every day, but yep. maybe don't think about a great deal, sort of like in a space for food. So um, where are we traveling today? What are we going inside of? Planet Tomato. Oh, <laughs> Planet Tomato. Oh, this sounds, now that's a really oh, interesting one. A tomato verse. A tomato verse. <laughs> Well, tomatoes are curious. Uh, one, actually, actually, you just reminded me. Sorry, I'm just, just reminded me. Did you talk about tomato verse? I meant like universe, but tomato verse sounded like something else. So, did you hear about the vegetarian that was taken on a romantic date to a sausage restaurant? No. She feared the verse. She what? Fe she feared the verse. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that took a while. Did you fear to hear that one arriving? Yeah, yeah, it did. So that was the to, to the the tomato the, the tomato verse, not the universe. The tomato verse. The tomato verse, uh, and in fact, it is a wonderfully massive universe. As are all of these ingredients at the moment that we're talking about. When you start to delve deeper. It's like unlocking a, you're falling down a rabbit hole. You're unlocking a key to a whole new set of dimensions. So tell me about your relationship with tomatoes, because it's one of those ones. I've been curious to hear you talk about this, because when you think about a tomato, it does feel like there's a little inner universe inside it. And I would say that it's a sort of ingredient that is all around in everything we eat. But I, I sort of really don't have much of a relationship with. I kind of eat them, do, but don't really. Do you like tomato ketchup? Uh... Yes, I do. In, 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 I mean, it has to be in the right place, if you know what I mean. It needs to be on fish and yeah, chips by the seaside. And you put it in the burger at all, or do you have? Are you are you on a are you on a bacon sandwich with, with with no ketchup or no brown sauce or a mixture of the two or, now you or say brown actually, sauce? Now you say it, ketchup's everywhere. Actually, it's got to be on a bacon sandwich. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's got to be on a bacon sandwich. It has to be on a hot dog. It has to be in a burger with mustard. Um, so yeah, ketchup, ketchup. But as a layman, I would presume, and this will sound terribly ignorant, is there much tomato in tomato ketchup? Because you presume there's just full of all sorts of bits and bobs. Well, it's got an awful lot of other things in it. However, the essence of it is obviously tomatoes. And there's a reason why I think tomato ketchup is like an expansion of the elements of tomato. Ooh. So, aha, now, now you're starting I with ketchup. Yeah. Forward on your mic. <laughs> if you would describe some taste attributes of tomato ketchup, when I say taste, I mean uh, the difference between taste and flavour. So, can tomatoes be sweet? 
Uh, can there be sweetness to tomatoes? Oh, yes, yes. Can there be saltiness to tomatoes? Yes. Can there be sourness or acidity to tomatoes? Yes. I see where you're going with this now. Can there be bitterness to tomatoes? Yes, definitely, yes. So there you just had sweet, salt, sour, bitter. Four out of the five basic tastes. And we've been talking enough over the years. What is the fifth taste? What is known yeah. as the fifth taste? I actually know the answer to this. It's umami. Exactly. Yes. Said with a nice deep Japanese martial <laughs> art accent. Yeah. And umami is the taste of glutamic acid. And umami is naturally present in breast milk is one of the highest levels of umami. Parmesan cheese, tomatoes shiitake mushrooms fermented foods soy sauce many things we crave umami and it is a taste that isn't fun enough it was discovered by a japanese professor called akida i-k-e-d-a in 1908 and i find this quite amazing imagine if you discovered a sense that you never knew existed yeah how would you discover it it's like, imagine you discover a color that you never knew existed. How would you discover it? Did, he, did he set out to discover it? Do you think, no. you one's got it wrong. I'm going to find a fifth one. No, he was drinking. And I don't know. I mean, well, I know why he was drinking this because it's, it's the staple of all Japanese people, basically. It's like a tea for the Brits is dashi for the Japs. So dashi? Japanese dashi is a mix, is a, a broth made with seaweed. And dried tuna. The tuna is so dried, it looks like a lump of wood. And you grate it like, uh, like um, sawdust. And you infuse it for a few seconds. You put seaweed in it. And, you, and it's, a, it's a comforting broth. So you know, like, when you're ill, your grand might have given you chicken soup. It's the chicken soup in Japan. And so this professor was sipping his uh, dashi. And as you do, he thought, there's something happening in my mouth. Not, not that I can smell there's something happening in my mouth that isn't sweet, it isn't salty, it isn't bitter, and it isn't sour or acidic. So maybe there's another taste. That takes so, some thinking, though. I mean, oh, it's, ama it's amazing. Healthy, healthy when no one's inquisition and ego put together, it I'd does. Say. When no one's told you, so now I can say we've done. Um, we've, we've done this several times before and it's always good to reiterate the importance of doing this simple experiment. If you clench your nostrils, eat something, keep your nostrils clenched, you'll taste salt, bitter, sweet, sour, umami. When you let go of your nostrils, you get the smell and the smell and the taste equals flavor. If you clench your nostrils and you dip your fingers in a, or finger in a pot of salt and lick it, you will taste the salt as clear as day with your nostrils clenched because it's taste, it's not smell. So this guy comes along and thinks, I'm feeling some taste, I'm feeling something in my mouth that doesn't, doesn't fit into these other four categories. So he called it umami. Umami. What does it mean? Do you know what that word means? Well, it, it, it means meaty or delicious or yummy, which took the science world a while to be able to accept it, quite a long while actually, because they thought, well, how can you say something's yummy or, or meaty? Or... So we identify salt as a taste, we identif identify sugar as a taste, we identify sweet as a taste, because 
we have identified receptors, what they're called papillae, on our tongue. So just like hairs on your, you know, hairs on your on your on your skin, or or, or just the receptor hairs on your body or receptors on your skin, these are all receptors for senses. So like your eyes are, light is a receptor for light. Your ears are receptors for sound. Your tongue is receptor for taste. And on your tongue, there are millions of little, tiny, little, imagine coral. Zoom in, it's like coral, a coral bed. And these coral beds have little furry sort of coatings to them. And they wobble around on your tongue at microscopic level. And they pick up messages. So for example, for bitter, there's over 25 so far bitter tastes. So the bitterness of an orange zest and the bitterness of a malaria pill or a cup of coffee. It's not the same bitter. Just like in sight, the sense of contrast is not the same as the sense of perspective, but they both come under the, column, the, 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 the subject of sight. Memory, all of these things, they're subdivided. But for, for, for keeping this relatively simple, five tastes. And one of the unique things about tomatoes is that if the tomato is ripe enough, it is like a superhero for the five tastes, which is one of the reasons why tomato ketchup is so successful, because it has all five. Now, what the companies do, do you like the way I close that loop on there? That was, the really, that was really cool. It makes sense, though. I'd never, I would never for a second consider why not just me, but the whole world loves tomato ketchup. But there is a scientific reason. It's because it's, they've got all, it's got the five basic tastes, then... Imagine those tastes being graphic equalizers. Along come a, come to a big food company over the years with their professors and stuff, and they go, right, ramp up sugar or sweet, ramp up sour, ramp up bitter a bit, ramp up salt a bit, and then ramp up um, umami. Then, in addition to that, they're going to put spices into it. So if you want to try and explain the effect of umami to somebody while they're tasting, it's incredibly different to demonstrate it with tomato ketchup because tomato ketchup has so many other things in it. Once you understand the feeling of umami, and this is maybe why Dashi was such a good medium for this guy to discover it, because it didn't have sweetness. It didn't have hardly any bitterness. It, there was probably a bit of salt from the seaweed, but it was not very much. So it allowed this more, what is in some respects, this more subtle fifth taste but in other respects, maybe one of the most important of the lot. Because from an evolutionary point of view, umami, glutamic acid, same as MSG. Umami taste, the highest umami uh, tasting food that we would generally experience as human beings, other than dipping our finger into a pot of MSG, is breast milk. If you don't and tend to experience a great deal. Not yeah. as an adult, no. no. <laughs> and we don't remember if we experiences as a kid, we probably wouldn't remember. However, uh, however, uh, there's, a, there's an amazing guy called Professor Paul Rosen at Monell Chemical Senses Center who did a lot of work on this a few years ago. And in fact, the colostrum, which is the thicker part of the breast milk, is loaded with glutamic acid and oxytocin. Have you heard of oxytocin? 
Yeah, absolutely. That's what's released in, in women when they give birth, isn't it? It's sort of like a natural... It's the empathetic hormone. So it's the hormone that makes you love people. It's the hormone... That's what... Um, that, that, uh, what was that big nightclub drug? Ecstasy. Ecstasy is all about oxytocin. So you're, you're, you just love everyone. You just everyone. You love everyone, which is a hard, wide element of human nature. So you imagine baby, milk, mum's breast... It, we need that. This is the beauty of nature and evolution. Need that connectivity. So that empathetic of uh, that development or developing empathetic moment between baby and mum through breastfeeding is really, really powerful. So that breast milk is full of oxytocin, and it's full of umami, which is glutamic acid. So, so that's why something... we like it. We're sort of programmed from birth almost to seek out or to enjoy. Um, or find sustenance in, 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 in ingredients which have high levels of umami, like tomatoes. Exactly. It's exactly why we do that. Exactly. Why we find comfort in those foods. There are many evolutionary reasons why we absolutely love tomatoes. And one of my first papers that I did, Reading University, was that I was reading classical French techniques that would tell you how to de-seed the tomato and throw the seeds away. And then you skin them and throw the skins away and use the flesh or the pulp. So I took the, separated the flesh, the pulp, the seeds, tasted them all. And for me, the seeds and the pulp with the seeds was the part of the tomato that had the most umami. So that was my first paper co-written paper with Reading university was a big challenge against everything that classical french cooking told you was wrong that i told you to do which was you get you throw that seed and pulp away but all the umami all of the meatiness in a tomato is in the very part of the tomato that french gastronomy would tell you to throw in the poubelle or the bin so that's french for rubbish bin and actually that's the most beautiful, complex, evolutionary impressive part of the tomato. If you try to make tomato ketchup just with tomato flesh, forget it. You can't make tomato ketchup without those seeds and the pulp because you don't have enough umami, which doesn't have enough of that glutamic taste that we crave and we love, which comes from an empathetic bonding between mother and child via breast milk uh, as we're growing up. Well, I'm already, I mean, already I am looking at tomatoes in a very different, slightly askew way now. This is, this is, so when I'm, so when I'm cooking then, does yeah. that mean I should make a sea change in the way I, I, I use tomatoes? Certainly the way I look at them, I'm going to be thinking differently about them now, but in the way I, I use them to, to cook with. Yeah, just, just value the pulp. So many, they don't, so many people still don't want the pulp and they don't want the seeds. Value. <laughs> value the, the pulp. Value the pulp, baby. Is that what's in the Bloody Mary? Do they put, is, is it all whizzed up in it? I don't really Yeah, Yeah, no, same thing. When you make tomato pulp, when you make passata, if you just do that with the flesh of the tomatoes and you don't put the seed and the, the seeds in the, and, and the, they've got that like gel-like uh, texture that joins all the seeds together in the center yeah. of a tomato. It's almost see-through, right? Yeah, if you don't get those two, if you don't put those two in, you try making the, uh, like a passata or a tomato pulp or a tomato reduction or whatever with just with the tomato flesh, 
you've lost all of the meatiness. It's actually flat and uninteresting. So that very core that classical French cooking told us to throw away is the crown jewels of the tomato. I'm just going to pause here for a second because the reason Heston and I could do this podcast and put it out there for free is because we have some people supporting us. And I just wanted to tell you about one of them right now. And this is something Heston and I really actually uh, enjoy and are interested in. So um, I thought you'd be interested to hear about it too. The Great Courses Plus is something we uh, we really want to recommend. It's created for the lifelong learner in all of us. It's a streaming service and it provides access to thousands of fascinating fact-based lectures across almost any topic imaginable. Um, They're all taught by world-leading professors and experts who they all know what they're talking about. And there's things from the everyday guide to wine, boosting intelligence, uh, watercolour painting, playing the piano. And there's the Great Courses app, which means you can watch it anywhere. I know, as far as sponsors we can talk about, this is one that's pretty easy for you to talk about because you're into it. I have been a big fan of the Great Courses for five years, six years, seven years. I watched most of the series on Charles Darwin. I watched Robert Hassan's. There was like 30 half an hour programs on mineralogy and the evolution of the periodic table, theoretical physics, art, writing, storytelling. I love, they have, they have managed to pull the most respected experts in their own field to do this. The good thing is if you're listening to this, you can actually tune in and uh, engage what we're talking about for free. So um, sign up for The Great Courses Plus. And for a limited time, they're giving uh, all of our listeners a free month of access to the entire library. You've got to use thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Heston. So thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Heston. Go on there and you're going to get a complete month of free access to the entire library. So thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash Heston and uh, yeah plug into as Heston says a lifetime of learning and learn some um, some really cool things right back into our ingredient I like this one you know tomatoes do not have a flavor or a taste until you cut through them or bite into them oh wait wait so if I was just to lick a tomato Yep. It would not have any taste or flavour. No, if it was on the green vine or the stem. So when you go into a greenhouse with a tomato, a tomato greenhouse in your, you know, your, your granny's garden, the smell, that wonderful smell of green, sort of green smell of tomatoes you can smell is not coming from the tomatoes. It's coming from the actual stem, the leaves, the vine. That's where it's coming from. But the tomato is this wonderfully self-contained thing that the moment you slice a knife through it or you bite into it or you bash it, that physical action creates, it activates different parts of the, of the tomato to be squashed together, which in turn activates enzyme activity, which is like fireworks. Poof, poof, poof. But you need to cut it, you cut it, bite it, this incredible thing, explosive flavor, but we can't really fully appreciate the difference because as soon as you bite into it, it's just a taste of a tomato. Are there any moments in your life where you have eaten a tomato that might be, I'm, I'm, I'm feeding you a bit here, but that might be un, in the sunlight or might be with olive oil, might be with basil, but there's a moment where that tomato has produced a little bit of sunshine yeah oh now well now you're saying it i mean i'm visualizing because the thing is if you say tomato they tend to think about the sort of slightly sorry looking cherry tomatoes you buy in the supermarket but now you're talking Mm -hmm. i'm thinking about those 
beautiful big fat sliced ones on a pl- white plate in Italy. Someone's drizzled oil on it, and suddenly you're yeah. They taste of something like they've been lacquered. They've been lacquered with sunlight. They've got this sheen or shine to them. You like that one? Oh, that's lovely. And, and, <laughs> with the little jewel-like crystals of salt reflecting the Mediterranean sun off the surface of this beautiful fruit. Tomatoes aren't vegetables, by the way. They're fruits. Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. Oh, this is that. <laughs> Just throw I'd that save, in. I'd save that one. Tomatoes are fruit. Yes. What's no? So I always, I always forget or never know the definition. Is it something to do with seeds? What? What? What's basically the seeds are on the inside. So a cucumber is a fruit. A pickled gherkin is a fruit. An aubergine is a fruit. A red pepper is a fruit. A green bean is a fruit. Strawberries come in, come under a different category, but that's another thing because they've got their seeds on the outside. But generally, these things are fruits. Pumpkins are fruits. Melons, well, melons are fruits. But the tomato, but it's more a surprising to think of tomatoes, green beans, courgettes, aubergines. Basically, everything. I've just realised this. Whoa! Everything you put in a ratatouille. Yeah, is a fruit. They're like Provencal fruits: green beans, red peppers, courgettes, aubergines, tomatoes, uh, garlic, and onion. No, but put those aside. Oh, hang on a second. It, this make. Oh, in cooking. Ah, here we go. I've got just um, JW sent through this. Uh, in cooking, tomatoes are usually used alone or paired alongside other true vegetables and savory dishes as a result they've earned a reputation as a vegetable even though they're technically a fruit by scientific standards this was the method of classification used by the u.s i love this this sounds like you're talking about nuclear nuclear warfare but this was classified by the u.s supreme court in 1893 during a legal dispute with a tomato importer who argued his tomatoes should be considered fruits to avoid the higher vegetable tariff. It was during this case that the court ruled a tomato would be classified as a vegetable on the basis of its culinary applications instead of its botanical categorization as a fruit. The rest is history. Never. Uh, other That's fruit, all down to that moment, um, is it? Uh, according to what I've just seen, what James has just said, other fruits that are often considered vegetables include cucumber, squash, Pea pods, peppers, eggplant, okra. Now, rhubarb is technically a vegetable. <laughs> this is brilliant. You're just completely changing, just changing everything. <laughs> and here's another, here's another question about tomatoes. I, it's one of those, you can myth bust these for me. I've heard that they are poisonous or somehow related to deadly nightshade. Or someone says, oh, if you have arthritis, you shouldn't eat tomatoes. Is, it, is that nonsense? Or what is that? Well, there are, <clears throat> okay, there's a couple of things here. So that, that clump, tomatoes 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 has a lot of has been a lot of discussion on tomatoes and rheumatoid arthritis tomatoes and several other diseases because of the level of something called lycopene that they have in them and lycopene for liver or kidney function is not meant to be very good whatsoever and though if you go back in time it was they were considered, I'm talking about maybe 1600, 1500 to 1700 deadly nightshade family, which I think they're probably still in the deadly nightshade family. However, they were unbelievably surprisingly new to the cooking stage, to the cooking theatre. 
as a, as a, as a playing an acting role, major acting role in the, in the characters of ingredients that we cook with very late, maybe 1600. They were used as a medicinal um, benefit for certain ailments, but you never ate them as a food. And this is why tomato ketchup, the first ketchup was, I don't know, two, three, four hundred years before tomato ketchup, maybe longer. I think the first ketchup was, one of them was mushroom, mushroom ketchup, ketchup manis, Indonesian. They were cucumber, cucumber ketchup, many ketchups, but tomato ketchup was basically the last we're about time to invent a new one but pea ketchup i don't know but we need to invent new ketchup because <laughs> tomato ketchup was the last <clears throat> that's that was the most recent and and the least authentic ketchup of the lot although it has become very authentic now i like the idea that tomatoes i like the idea that tomatoes are quite recent they're quite modern almost because they feel like they're so prevalent in in so many foods that we eat just on a day-to-day basis you don't even think about them but it feels like they're actually quite a newcomer to the party which is quite a nice yeah, new well, way to think about them you know how pizza, um, the modern, what we call the modern traditional pizza, uh, where it came from? Naples. came from Naples, Italy. And do you know why? What was the actual, the core, the nugget of the origin of the Naples pizza? Oh, I've, I've no idea, actually. I've never thought about that. It was tomatoes and the canning process. So it was something like 1890, when canning became really big and <clears throat> yeah, you can stuff, now you've got foods that are going to last for a long time. And at the foot of Vesuvius, they grew San Marzano tomatoes, which is this particular brand of tomato. A bit like, a, imagine condensing a red pepper in shape to sort of a tomato size. That's San Marzano. But they fitted into a canning tin really nicely because they were more like pickled <laughs> McGurkins. That's so why they, they chose them, because they weren't the best flavor or taste. One, one of the main reasons, they, they, and, and, they, and they supported the cooking. So they canned San Marzano tomatoes. At the same time, um, there was that, the, that area of Italy, uh, they were growing wheat and, and a, had a big, long history of flour from, from Pompeii days and, and before. So you've got flour, flatbreads, you've now got canned tomatoes, and then you've got Princess, oh, I can't remember her name now, the Princess Blah de Blah of Italy, who had her palace there. And they created this flatbread for her, which they called the Napolitana. Right. Red, green, and white. It's margarita. Hence the name was Margarita. Margarita. (laughs) Never. Yeah, her name was Margarita. And and the, the legend goes there's a restaurant that's still there in Naples now called uh, Pizza uh, Biondi. And uh, this, they, he did a, this guy created a flatbread, but he put mozzarella with the cows local. The cows are relatively local to Naples for making mozzarella. Uh, basil, just basil's everywhere in the summer in Italy, and canned tomatoes. And the modern pizza was invented thanks to the tomato, the, the San Marzano tomato and the canning process. That is what started pizza. And it was only in 1890 or something. That's crazy. You think it's been around for hundreds of years. And I love the idea yeah. it was made specifically for, it was invented for somebody called Margarita, which is... Called Margarita. And my guys, in fact, have made a pizza. Her oven, her pizza oven is still there in her old palace, which is a museum now on the hills 
above uh, in the hills above uh, Naples. And when you say pizza oven, imagine a microwave you'd buy from Argos. Right. Made in cheap metal. I think I've got that one. Replace it with stone. Wow. Okay. The door that barely shuts. That's it. That was the that was the first. That was the first, the original first ever pizza oven. That's great, really, especially when people really spend a fortune on it now, you know, and, and spend ages going, oh, you've got to get the right, this and that. Actually, it was uh, incredibly lo-fi. I love, I, I think it's, I love, one of, the, one of the things that I love about pizza is mysticism, but also the Naples pizza, it's fast food. But there's nothing fast about it. The only thing fast about it is you need, you have to cook it in less than a minute and 20 seconds. Wow. Otherwise, it's not a true pizza. So the oven has to be 450 degrees. But to heat the oven up, you've got to make the oven with a stone and build it up. And you've got to temper it and heat it and get it ready for several days. The tomatoes are grown at the foot of Vesuvius in volcanic soil. And as well as that nice, long-growing, hand-picked process, they then have to go into a can, and the canning process for a few days. The flour is sieved 20-something times. The dough, you have to make the dough and ferment it for between one and two days. So there's nothing fast about pizza. It's the slowest, it's that's the slowest a, it's fast a, food there is. It's the slowest fast food there is. The only thing that's quick is the time in the oven. And it's so quick, if you're not careful, it's burnt. This is... Okay, so every time, I mean, and we, um, unfortunately, we have now, again, run out of time. And every time we dive into one of these ingredients, I end up with more questions... Than I started with, but I genuinely have to say, having been thinking about pulp and tomatoes and breast milk and pizza and ketchup, am I, in terms of changing my relationship with tomatoes, I will not look at them the same way after this. And I have a million more questions about them, but what a wonderful, humble ingredient that is so complex. I'll leave you with um, one more nugget. Never put tomatoes in the fridge. Unless you want them to lose all their flavor. Oh, my tomato is in the fridge right now. What, what, so why? Leave them out. They lose their flavor. The enzymes, the, the, that, those enzymes that are activated when you slice through or bite into the tomato, they just die off. And so that's not, why they're tasteless when they come out, because in supermarkets, they're going to be in fridges from the minute they arrive, right? No, they started to, have a look. Okay. Have a look. Next time you go to a supermarket, they used to keep them in fridges. Now they don't. For yeah. that reason. For that reason, is it really? That, yeah, kills them. And then I bring them home and stick them in the fridge and I wonder why they don't taste it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, put some, and put some blocks of you know, ice cream packets on top so they get bruised and squashed. Yeah. That's about right. And then you yeah. can find them at the bottom. And then the you fridge. can't open the packet without using your teeth to rip it open. <laughs> oh, Heston, as ever, thank you so much for another adventure to the center of an ingredient. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Tomatoes are a whole new universe to explore. Um, it's a very big universe, actually. It really is. And I think this is another one we're going to have to come back to because I've got a lot more questions on this. But for now, thank you ever so much. Uh, it's time to say goodbye, Heston. Goodbye, Heston. <laughs>